morning, everybody. As you can see, I'm very creative in my PowerPoint presentations. Um, Merry Christmas. Put a, a lot of time into that. Um, if you would like to, um, just stand and we'll read the one verse I have prepared to read today. It is in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. My version NASB reads, And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. Uh, just let us pray. Lord, just thank you for your word, and uh, thank you for sending your son, and um, just thank you for this time that we can uh, remember this. And I pray after today that um, this is a, a season that can uh, pierce our hearts and um, lead us to a stronger relationship with you and um, a more meaningful way to um, share that relationship with other people. Uh, in your name, amen. Uh, please be seated. All right. Well, as... Uh, Dexter's already explained, I don't think I need to remind everybody how difficult and uncomfortable and uh, crazy 2020 has been as a year. Thankfully, it's almost over and uh, we can move on to hopefully, hopefully a nice direction, more godly and um, some more positive things. But as I was reflecting on that, I uh, thought of a question for today. What kind of world did Christ enter into when he was born? As I was going after this question, I found three interesting parallels on what people were experiencing between our time now and when Jesus was born. So the first parallel is uh, to consider the political environment that Jesus was born into. I would suggest that it was an ungodly environment for these political leaders. The Roman and Jewish leaders, both that were in power, were not godly leaders. They did not have God's interest in mind. Two examples of this. The Roman leader, in Luke chapter 2, before Jesus was born, Augustus Caesar, or Caesar Augustus, he decreed a census across the entire land. And that meant that everyone had to travel to Judea in order to be registered under the census. Now two things could be accomplished by the census. One, they wanted to see who's available for war. And two, uh, was the purpose to increase taxes um, for more money for the Roman government. Two, we see the Jewish leaders in Matthew chapter 2, King Herod, no more than two years after Jesus was born, did not have the interest of God and seeking after the Messiah. And we see that by him trying to trick the Magi into revealing the location of where Jesus was so that he could kill him. And when the Magi tricked King Herod and did not reveal this information, King Herod then, enraged with this, decided to kill every 
um, baby two years and under throughout entire Bethlehem and all of the surrounding areas. So we can see these leaders did not have God's interest in mind, but their own personal interest and gain. The second parallel I see with our times is the economic uncertainty on two scales. Number one, a national scale. And this comes back to the increased taxes that we've seen from Augustus when he called his census. He was looking to get the exact number of people to make sure he takes their hard-earned money to increase their, their wealth. The second level we see is a personal scale. We see this on a personal level with Joseph, with the loss of wages that Joseph experienced during this time. So many people, like Joseph, had to travel far for this government-mandated census. So Joseph and Mary together traveled 80 miles, or for us Canadian folks, 130 kilometers. So that could roughly take him about four days each way. That's not including the time that he actually spent at the census, doing the census things, however long that took, it's not recorded. Well, while they were there, Jesus was also born in Judea. So now when he's born after that, they have to travel to Jerusalem to, uh, to complete the law and the things that were required for their new baby. So we're looking at weeks of no working for Joseph, which means no income either. And unfortunately for Joseph, there was no government funding or government aid programs. The third parallel between our times is the emotional burden that the people around surrounding Jesus' birth um, had to face. See, emotions were high and stressful in their time. And just beginning with Mary in Luke chapter 1, she left Elizabeth's home after John was born, and she was already three months pregnant with Jesus. She now has to travel home and confront her husband after being away for this long. Now talk about having a tough time coming home and trying to convince your husband you didn't commit adultery with another man. Three months they never communicated. We don't see any record of them talking. We know for sure they didn't talk on the phone. They didn't Zoom, anything. They had no way of talking to each other apart from maybe writing a letter but we don't see if they even did that. So Mary's coming home not only to face potential betrayal and social disgrace from Joseph, but also if she's deemed by this, the spiritual leaders as committing adultery, she would also face betrayal of God. And committing adultery in, in God's law was a stonable offense. So she had a lot at stake here. And we actually even see in, in the account of Matthew that Joseph himself knew it would be a disgrace for her to come home and people to know this. In Matthew 1.19 it says, Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, desired to put her away secretly. He knew if he made this public, it would be a disgrace for her. 
So by Mary standing up for what God had commanded her, she could lose everything, socially, all the things with her life, even her actual life. So I imagine as Mary's walking home, she had a lot to think about in that journey. And if we fast forward now, after Joseph has received the dream from the Lord and is told that the Holy Spirit is the one that's responsible for their baby, they're now together and they're on their way to Judea for this mandated government census. Jesus is not born yet and they're traveling now. And I want to take a second for the women now to put yourself in Mary's shoes. I want you guys to think about one thing, especially the women that have had children before. Ask yourself, would you rather be sitting at home, nine months pregnant, with your feet up, on the couch, with your favorite snack in your lap, and you know your favorite show, maybe your husband's rubbing your feet, or would you rather be traveling on a donkey for 130 kilometers? Because that's what Mary had to do. She's nine months pregnant, could have the baby at any moment, and she's traveling on a donkey. She's traveling away from all her medical assistance that she was planning to have in her hometown of Nazareth. When she gets to Judea, she actually ends up having to give birth in that place that was so overcrowded with people that she had to have her newborn baby put in a manger because there was no room at the end. I know what it takes to make pregnancy plans and, and how much effort it takes to, to have the baby the way, the way you want, and I can promise you this was not what Mary expected. How about, how about on the men's side? How about the emotional taxation and stress that Joseph had to go through? Imagine being him. Put yourself in his shoes and your wife comes home after three months of no communication and she's pregnant. Well, that uh, I can only speak for myself, but I don't think we'd be very happy. It would be very difficult not to be angry and feel betrayed and upset. Especially when she tries to tell you something so crazy that the Holy Spirit actually gave her this baby. But we see a lot about Joseph's character and the stressful choices he had to make. He cared about Mary a lot. He cared about her so much that he did not want to disgrace her and make this event public. He wanted to put her, give her to her divorce secretly and keep her safe. I'm sure he had probably a lot of sleepless nights making that decision and he cared about her a lot and did not want to do this to her. And the interesting thing we see here too is Joseph had every right to make it public. Based on the law, the judicial system would decide on her adultery action and he had every right to do that. The Bible doesn't give us any detail after their their marriage is reconciled and 
the six months of Jesus' pregnancy, they don't give us any information on the emotional things they went through as a married couple. But I don't think it's too far-fetched to think that I didn't, it didn't get much easier. The possibility of facing social rejection from their family and friends when you have a baby that you're claiming was um, pregnant by the Holy Spirit, I'm sure there was a lot of family and friends that did not believe that and thought they made them a little crazy. There also was a potential that they could have been spiritually rejected from the leaders in their temple or their teachers as well. So these are just some of the emotional things that they could have been going through in their times surrounding Jesus' birth. So back to our question. What kind of world did Christ enter into when he was born? Was it economic certainty? No. Was there godly leadership? No. Was it a time of peace and emotional stability? No. See, Jesus came into the world at a time of instability, not stability. Which leads me to think, if things were so crazy in the world at that time, then why send Jesus? And this is what's so beautiful about God. See, God, God's intention of sending Jesus at this time was not to save them from their external circumstances of things like financial troubles or the government or emotional stresses. He came to save their spiritual lives so that they could be in relationship with him forever. There are two things that happen when Jesus saves you from your sin. Number one, he frees you from being guilty before God and breaking his law and paying that price for breaking that. And two, he brings you into a new relationship with him. And the great thing about God is he's always desired this relationship. I'll give you three examples of this. Exodus chapter 6, 6 and 7. It says, Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm, and I will... And with mighty acts of judgment, I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, and He brought you out of under the yoke of the Egyptians. Second one, Colossians 1.20. For God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through His blood shed on the cross. Last one, Romans 5.10. For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? God has always desired reconciliation and relationship with us. Jesus did not come to just set you free from your debt and your sin and leave you there. He came to bring us back to God so we could be in relationship with Him. And this new relationship equals shedding of the old self and putting on the new. And we see this in Colossians chapter 3. 
Do not lie to each other since you've taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge and in the image of its creator. So there's a new thing happening now when we enter in relationship with God. And speaking for myself, and, and I've experienced this new relationship, it, it allows you to walk in a way that can put aside all these things that you were doing and, and start new. And the eternal perspective that God provides with His ways allows a much easier way to navigate through this fallen world that we live in. It provides a means of stability, His Word, and the relationship gives you some grounded hope every day. So, some people here may be asking yourself, or someone may ask you, how can I be saved by Jesus? Well, I know I've heard in the past, and I actually thought this myself. Um, when I came to this crossroad, I actually thought I didn't deserve it. I thought um, my sins were too heavy and too many. Um, I didn't deserve such a thing. And the interesting part is you don't. And that's what's so great about God. Is it's about his gracious loving gift that he gives to you. And I know some people might think, well, my sins are unforgivable. Or I have too many. But Hebrews chapter 10 verse 12 says that Jesus died once for sin of, for all time. That includes the past, present, and future. It's all the sins. So there isn't too many that you could have that he would not cover. Another thing that someone could be thinking is maybe my, I haven't done anything that's bad. I haven't killed anyone or physically hurt anybody. Well, sin is sin. And whether you lie, gossip, or murder somebody, all sin put Jesus on the cross, and all sin had to be paid for. So there is no excuse. So if this is something that someone is interested in, here's four steps you can take towards this action. Number one, admit that you have sinned against God and broken his law. Number two, believe that he sent his son to die for your sin and the world's. Number three, confess and take ownership of your sin before God. And number four, live a life of repentance in a loving relationship with Jesus. This is the way God intended it to be. Not just to forgive your sins, but to be in a loving relationship with us forever, from now uh, to all eternity.